So for us, we, over the summer, we've been uh, doing a series, uh, a series on um, the parables of Jesus, and, uh, but, but today we start a new series, a new series uh, through uh, the book of First and Second Timothy. And so uh, this, uh, this series really is um, because... Uh, because we're going to blow a hole into the wall, in that wall, so we can have more people sitting here, because God has grown our number, and really the attempt in that is to not need to go to two services, so we can be one fellowship together, uh, but that's, you know, that's worth inconvenience for that point. Uh, but as God has grown our number, it's really easy to lose, to potentially lose who we are. To, to maybe frame church in ways that uh, God would frame them. And so uh, the books that, there's a lot of different books that speak to different aspects of the church. First and Second Timothy speak directly to many facets of church life. Uh, this, um, and so we're going to study First and Second Timothy uh, over the next uh, many weeks uh, before Advent. And we're going to use this as just a way for us as God's people to uh, just kind of before him allow his word to teach us. And so we begin in this series with looking at what is the teaching of the church? What do we teach? What do we uh, put forth? And so First and Second Timothy is basically Paul's instructions to a young pastor, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a guy that, that Paul had mentored, discipled, raised up in the faith, uh, trained in ministry. And so th these two books, First and Second Timothy, along with Titus, are often called the pastoral epistles. Now, an epistle is a letter. Uh, and pastoral are letters written to men who are taking that leadership function in churches, seeking to lead God's church well. Uh, the ESV Study Bible kind of said that it, it's helpful to re regard this, 1 Timothy, the entire letter, as a formal, authoritative charge uh, from Paul to Timothy, a list of duties that Paul is challenging and directing Timothy to perform. So as Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy is now in Ephesus. So uh, Ephesus is a city on the Mediterranean. It's a court city. It's a wealthy city. Uh, lots of stuff going on, very influential city uh, in the Roman Empire. And if you might remember, there is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in Ephesus, and that's the temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. Uh, and um, just kind of an interesting city in which Timothy is, is uh, placed. So this was written about 62 to 64 A.D. Okay, remember Jesus... Uh, you know, uh, kind of give or take a few years, depending on how messed up you say the calendar is, uh, of um, maybe 33 A.D. Uh, was uh, when Jesus um, uh, was crucified and, and, and ascended into heaven. So this is, you know, 30-some years later, this letter from Paul to Timothy. And this is a couple of years after the letter to Ephesus. So the book of Ephesians is written to this church where Timothy is. I'll give you all that because if you want to say, all right, where, where are we and how did we get there? Go back and read Ephesians. Go back and look at Acts. And 
the places where Paul went, because Paul had spent three years in this city, um, basically about five to seven years earlier than the writing of this letter. So all that to say, uh, if you missed all of that, basically Paul's been here before. He's sent Timothy. He's writing back to the pastor of that church, okay? Uh, and that's what's going on. So all that to say, let's submit ourselves to the word of God. We do this each week. We stand and we rise uh, so that we allow God's word to speak to us. We are not the ones coming up with uh, these things. This is Paul, or God's word through Paul to Timothy, but it is also for us as his people. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is, that love, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, according me to this service, through, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me, or for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Herminius and Alexander, 
whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That is a lot to handle in the first chapter of the letter. We pray that God would teach us much. Father, uh, by your spirit, I pray that your goodness, your grace, uh, your power, the fact that you are infinite and eternal, holy and righteous, God, all of that would come through. But God, I pray that we would all truly see ourselves. Father, if the Apostle Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent, arrogant, and proud, Father, where are we? And God, would you, by your Spirit, help us to see ourselves for who we truly are so that we might really and truly understand and know your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We may be seated. In the last couple of years, I don't know about you, but it feels like time at some point stands still and then time flies. And, you know, with COVID and all that, it's hard to really know how long things have been uh, since. You know, it was only in June of last year, you might remember, when a high-rise condo building in Surfside, Florida, outside of Miami, collapsed. Uh, and 98 people were killed in that disaster, a disaster not seen uh, anything like that in modern U.S. history, that within minutes, the east wing of this 13-story this condo building collapsed. The building was designed in 1970, or in the 1970s, 136 units, uh, condo units in this building. It was completed in 1981 uh, after you know, many years. It was marketed as luxury living uh, on the water. Uh, as the engineers have gone in and tried to figure out what would cause a collapse of a building like this, uh, they, they pointed to some things in the construction that were legal at the time, uh, but they, they compromised the foundation and the integrity of the building. The Wall Street Journal, when they were writing on this, uh, they talked about the original builder skipping some, uh, some of the waterproofing uh, of areas of the building. Uh, allowing salt water to seep into the concrete and kind of eroding uh, its foundation. Uh, they installed at places too few uh, of those special heavy load-bearing walls to keep the building from toppling over. Uh, at times, they didn't put enough concrete over rebar. and other places, they didn't put enough rebar uh, to support the structure. But sadly... Uh, there, were, there were indications of that, and they said that some of those issues were most definitely fixable, but yet they weren't fixed. Uh, the, bear, the, the board um, didn't want to do those extensive repairs, but yet rather focused on others. And just weeks before the building collapsed, they started to replace the roof. It's interesting. They're working on something maybe cosmetic, when the foundation of the entire building is eroding away. A building without a solid foundation may last and stand for a little while, maybe a few decades, but ultimately it will fail. And the same is true of a church. The church, and I'm not talking about the church building, we pray this doesn't fall apart in 30 years. Uh, we didn't cut budget that much. Uh, but... I'm not talking about the church building. When I say a church needs a foundation, I'm talking about what the Bible calls a church, which is the people of God. The gathering of his people together, that is 
the church without a foundation, a local gathering of God's people will crumble and will fracture. So what is our foundation? What will cause us to actually remain? That the truth which God's word points to is our foundation. Who God is, how we made the world, who we are in the world, how this world is broken, how we've rebelled against God, and then how God saves his people, how he redeems all things, and a few other things in the Bible are the foundation of what we rest on. The foundation of the church is found where? It is found in the authoritative, inspired word of God. This is our foundation. Leading us to sound doctrine that comes from the word. That yes, doctrine is not bad. Deep doctrine, sound doctrine is a uh, is a detailed look at God's word, a study of God's word, so that we might understand what he is teaching, so that we understand who we are as a church. So if God's word says something and we don't like it or don't agree with it, what do we do? To really have a foundation of the gospel and that God's word is our foundation, when we don't agree with it and don't like it, we still submit ourselves to it. That God's word is speaking. We don't change the word or throw the word out to suit what we want it to say. We submit ourselves to the word of God. And that's why we stand every week before our sermon text. Because we are saying God is speaking and we are submitting ourselves to his word. That's why we do this. That's, that's why the call to worship is God's word to us, bringing us into worship. The foundation of a church is the word of God that points to uh, God and his goodness and his grace. And so who's writing this is the Apostle Paul. You look at verse 1, it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a, per is a person that is sent. But it's not just like a messenger, but it's somebody that is sent with authority. So an apostle denotes one who is legally charged with representing uh, the cause of another person. So an apostle is going, and so Paul is going on behalf of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is an apostle, why? By the command of God. Sent by God's command, sent with God's authority. He writes this to his young protege, Timothy. So Timothy, one of Paul's, one that Paul has poured his life in, he's writing to him to help him learn how to lead the church, what to teach, how to pastor God's people, and how to allow God's people to rest on a foundation that is not a pastor, that is not Paul, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ and his word as he reveals himself. And so with that, what do we see in this, in this letter is that as the church, we protect the foundation of truth. So remember, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Remain in the city. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So the, the, uh, the teaching and, and the, the, the truth of the gospel has been given from Paul to Timothy 
Uh, he knows the word. He knows the truth of God. And he is in this city to push back teaching that is outside of the doctrine taught in the scriptures. Because they, they might teach a different doctor, doctrine. He says also to charge them in verse 4 not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Basically, that they would dream up what they're going to teach. That they're going to kind of look for some hidden message. And Paul is saying, here it is. Timothy, push back and charge certain persons not to teach anything other than the word of God. And Timothy is charged to protect the teaching of the gospel. And so to protect that is really to battle and push back against false teaching. So we talked about myths and genealogies. What do they do in verse 4? What's the result of these people chasing after myths and genealogies is that they promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So what is a speculation? Kind of as you dig into that word in the Greek, it's worthless imaginings or idle disputes. The, the modern translation of that, Twitter. Right? You know, worthless imaginings and idle disputes. Right? Uh, and, but, but sadly, a lot of churches start to do it too. You know, we can throw stones all we want until we start looking internally. And it's amazing how God's people can, can get so twisted up over, over kind of speculations and these kind of, uh, kind of insignificant arguments inside of the church. Speculations. And God's saying, here's my word. Submit yourself to it. Because what's the next word? So instead of speculations, what? So instead of speculations, stewardship. Stewardship that is by faith. And what is stewardship? We just looked at it uh, with the parable of the talents, right? A, a steward is somebody that manages something that's entrusted to them. So they don't own something. They manage it on somebody else's behalf. And so stewardship is something that's been given to us, and we manage it and take care of it. What would that be? If, if, it's, if stewardship is being set against myths, genealogies, and speculations, what has been entrusted to God's people is the word of God. God giving it to us, uh, giving it uh, so that we might know him. It's not we come up with our most original thoughts. It is a careful handling of what God has given to us. And stewardship ought to be characterized by verse 5. Okay, what is verse 5? That, it, uh, that the idea of this is, uh, that the point of this is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the idea of stewardship is that we receive it by faith. We don't come up with it, God speaks. And we do that with a purity of heart and a, and a conscience before the Lord that's clean uh, and a sincere uh, nature to our faith. Because what is happening, what happens if we don't do that is verses 6 and 7. That certain persons, by swerving from these, basically that, uh, the, the, that triad of pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. 
Okay? And so if you don't submit yourself to the Word of God as a teacher, then you're teaching your own thoughts. And that's why this is front and center to what we preach. And we do it unapologetically. And next week you'll see why I spent so much time on this point uh, right now. Is because God's Word is speaking. Because he goes on at the end of this passage, Paul is charging Timothy. He says, I charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, uh, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. That they would wage war. Isn't that interesting? A fight to uphold the truth of God's word. A battle pushed back what is contrary to the word of God. Especially when our world is moving further and further away from the truth. The church will be called more and more uh, to stand for the word because they will be more and more pressured to move where the world is moving. And we have a laundry list of ways that our, our world is moving further away from the word of God. And the pressure on God's church and God's people is to move as well. It's a stewardship of caring for the word as God gives it to us that we would battle and wage war against these things. Because why? Why would we do that? Why would we battle against false teaching? Why don't we just say, you know what? False teaching is false teaching. And if God will sort it out, then we let it just sit there. Why do we battle? Is verses 19 and 20, or is the middle of 19 that it's stored. All right, by rejecting this, Paul says, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Herminius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Because if we don't push against false teaching, false teaching does have a way of growing, and it has a way of destroying people's faith into people's lives, uh, that they become blasphemers against the Lord themselves. So this is not a social club. That's not why we're here. Though we have social things, the point uh, is that the gospel of God's grace and the truth of God's word begins to frame who we are. Because then we get to this next section. So, uh, you know, as we protect the foundation of the truth, we battle against false teaching, but also there's a right understanding of God's law. Because as I read this, you may have gotten turned off by verses kind of like 9 through 11. Like, you know, it was one of those laundry lists of things people struggle with, right? Um, or ways that people sin against the Lord. You know, verse 8, now we know that the law is good. And he's talking about God's law, not like the law of a land. Verse 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Okay, spoiler alert, that's everybody in here. Okay, so the law is good and it was given for us who, by nature, go against the things of God. That God's law was given, why? It was given to show us the righteousness of God. And Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mountain. At the Sermon on the Mountain, he says, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So here's the law of God, the righteousness of God, put in a way of living. Now be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you might say, well, what's, how is that a help to me? Here it is, is because Galatians 3 pushes into that. Is that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the curse in the book of the law. So you don't do everything, you break it all. Next verse. Now it is evident because of that that no one is justified before God by the law. So you've got to keep it all or you break it all. So obviously nobody is justified or right before God because of the law. And what's the point of it? But the law was given to reveal the righteousness of God and then to show us our unrighteousness. That's why Paul says to Timothy that the law was given not to the just, not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous, to the lawless, to the disobedient. Is it so that we might make ourselves right? No. It's to show us our disobedience and our lawlessness. Because there is no one righteous not even one. So God's law was given to us and given to. It was that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You could probably find yourself somewhere in that list. That the law of God was given to lawbreakers. So that we could find ourselves in that and recognize that we need God's grace. Because the next verse or the next phrase, right after that list, you're saying, man, that's oppressive. Right after that list, the next phrase is, all of that is given in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here's the law, but it's in accordance with the gospel. That the law reveals unrighteousness so that the gospel of God's grace may reign. Because many people hear a list like this back in 9 to 10, a list of this kind of sin, uh, and, and people can feel very oppressed by this, right? And you see this as a list of a bunch of things you can't do. You know, that God's just trying to take away your freedom and, you know, the way that, that you might have joy in this life. But let me flip that on its head. Because instead, this list helps us see the ways that we draw away from real and true freedom. We think, we think freedom is this. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's, what, that's how we tend to define freedom. Basically, to have no authority over you. But yet, if you play that out for a while, it doesn't even take very long. It always leads to destruction. I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want, with no authority over me. If we say that's freedom, it always leads to destruction. Destruction of your life, destruction of your marriage, destruction of your family, your career, and a lot of other things. But yet, we still say, well, that's freedom. 
God is saying freedom is found not without authority, but found under the authority of God. Not away from his authority, but under his authority. And the human heart says no. The human heart says, I got a better way. That's what Adam did in the garden. Adam and Eve, we've got a better way. Out from under the authority of God. But the law helps us truly see. It helps us see all the ways that we are seeking freedom or life out from under the authority of God. When we truly see, where do we end up? Is that we proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ. So we, we fight for uh, and uh, seek to pursue and preserve the foundation of truth. But what is, what is the message that we proclaim is the grace of Jesus Christ. That all sorts of churches teach all sorts of things. But the only message that truly brings hope is the message of grace. And the message of grace comes to us. You know, many of you... Uh, maybe have been in a church growing up and you've heard kind of the message of morality, right? You know, act right. Uh, get your life straightened out. Stop, stop doing that kind of stuff, right? And when that is the message that we preach, and let's say that's the only message that we preach, it breeds a culture of hiding our sin and hiding our rebellion against God. Because we hide because we think our right actions bring us into right standing. And so if you've been raised in that kind of culture, that kind of church teaching, that it's about you behaving rightly and that's what makes you acceptable, the beauty of the gospel is that we proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus. Rather than a culture of hiding, hear Paul's words as he explains the gospel that came to him. This is in verse 12 and 13 of verse 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, which is kind of one of those phrases that's like Paul's probably shaking his head as he writes it. Because it doesn't make any sense with what comes next. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He goes on, but I received mercy. I had, uh, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom, Paul says, I am the foremost. Oftentimes around God's people, there are people that think they are, they are uh, so far away from God that they cannot be brought back. That they cannot be covered by the grace of God. And Paul is saying he is the chief and foremost of sinners. In a sense, you can't get any further from, from him than I was. And the grace and mercy of God washed over me. The gospel that we believe, rather than hiding our sin. Did you, did you hear Paul's words? 
I'm the foremost sinner. I acted in unbelief. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, a blasphemer, abusive speech about God, a persecutor, someone who looked to hurt God's people and tried to crush the work of God. Insolent is another word for arrogant pride, that they are arrogantly superior to other people. So that's how Paul said he, uh, he acted. So rather than hiding his sin, he's like, this is what I was doing. Instead of that, we can talk like this. And we celebrate phrases. Uh, when, when we can say those things, we start to celebrate with phrases like, I received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me. Jesus came to save sinners. And I thank him that his mercy abounded to me. When we start to get the gospel, we start to understand the foundation of what God is laying for a church. And so, hopefully you hear it every week. That if Jesus came to save sinners, what does that mean? Is that you cannot save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't make yourself right. You, when you submit yourself to the living God, when you surrender to Jesus, by faith, He is the one who saves. Do you know Him by faith, or are you so busy trying to get yourself and your act right that you are in absolute bondage? The beauty of the gospel is that we can say, yes, those things are true. Yet, the mercy of God, the grace of God, it is received and overflows to sinners like me and you. It's not just to us, but it's also for all who believe. Because, did you catch that? That the gospel doesn't just come to God's people and save and do amazing work in us. The gospel comes to us so that it might show God's grace and his mercy to other people who need to hear it. We proclaim his grace so that others might know. Verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Please don't hide the grace of God. But to truly talk about the grace of God, Paul talks about his rebellion, his walking away, his arrogance, his pride, so that the grace of God shines through, not Paul. In me, he says, Jesus might display his perfect patience, an example to those who believe. I pray that that's what you hear in this church. I pray that's what you see and experience, and that's what we uh, that's what we talk about in this church, is the grace of the living God who comes to, to save sinners. Rather than Jesus is, is great, and we sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of us because we're here getting our act together. Why don't you come get your act together too? That's not good news. Because we all know why. The beauty is 
And Paul like, gets in the middle of this passage and he can't contain himself. When he starts thinking of the gospel that comes to him, that the gospel as God's perfect patience for him is now unleashed on people around him, he just launches into this benediction. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the teaching of a church that actually has a foundation that God gives to his people. The beauty of his word who reveals who he is and the message that we preach is grace. If you have not trusted in Christ by faith, would today be the day of salvation? Would we get the privilege of, of ushering you into the kingdom of God that you might meet the living God, the Savior of sinners for the first time? But if you've known him for decades, would we maybe come back to that sense of rehearsing again what he saved us out of, what he redeemed, what he has, the amazing work he's done in us? Subsequent weeks, we'll look at sanctification um, and how God makes us more and more like Jesus. But for now, let's just, let's just, just root on and uh, just resonate with the work of God of grace for sinners like me and like you. God, um, I, I pray, Father, that you uh, would be in our midst, that you would uh, take your word, and that you would uh, just convince us of yet again that you reveal yourself to us. God, we can submit ourselves to you as a good, uh, as a good and loving Savior. Father, I pray that you would uh, draw people to know you. Because we know that in a church with this many people, there are so many people here that are probably trying to just get it right or do life on their own. The Holy Spirit do draw them out. We pray uh, and thanks uh, for this time, for your word, and for your sins in Christ's name. Amen.